The following discussion is titled Expanding Rights and Equality for All, sponsored by the League of Women Voters of Dane County. We hear from three representatives, Linda Belial at Belial and Robson on marital property rights in same-sex marriage, Lynn Breedlove, retired executive director of Disability Rights Wisconsin, and Brian Jukums and Tim Michael with Gay Straight Alliance for Safe Schools, or GSAFE, on LGBTQ rights. The speakers were asked to give recommendations to changes on the League's positions on these three issues. Each speaker had handouts which you can download from the League's website at lwvdanecounty.org. This talk was held at Capital Lakes Retirement Community in Madison on February 4, 2015. Kathy Johnson, the League's Program Chair, introduces each speaker, beginning with Linda Belisle on marital property rights in same-sex marriage. First tonight is Linda Belisle. Uh, she's founding shareholder of her law practice, which deals with family law and appellate level since 1980. She graduated cum laude from the University of Wisconsin Law School in 1979 and clerked for the District 4 Court of Appeals in Wisconsin the following year. She's been listed in the best lawyers in America since 1998 and served as an adjunct professor at the University of Wisconsin Law School from 83 to 95 in family law. She's taught numerous continuing education programs for local and national professional organizations in the area of marital and community property, tax, pension, and retirement plans, divorce in a family business, and appellate practice. She's also been active in developing legislation in the areas of marital property, pension distribution, child support, custody, and spousal support, and the rights of LGBT families. Linda. Thank you for inviting me tonight. This is interesting. We haven't talked about marital property and uh, Chapter 766 that was effective as of 1986 for a long time. We've kind of gotten used to it, and all of a sudden, um, in my practice, uh, in three situations since November, all of a sudden I'm talking about marital property again. But I was asked to speak on the proposed uh, revisions to um, the League of Women Voters recommendations on the marital property statute. And the revision appears to be limited to saying the marital property statute, Chapter 766, applies to same-sex married couples, okay? Now, Judge Crabb, who issued the decision saying that Wisconsin's ban on same-sex marriage was unconstitutional, essentially already did that by saying all Wisconsin laws have to treat couples, same-sex couples who get married the same way they treat heterosexual couples who get married but it is good uh, for organizations like the League to restate it in the context of what they think our legislation should say expressly. Many people in this room have probably had experience with what they assumed the law was, turned out not to be the law because those precise words weren't written somewhere. So I think it's good uh, for the League to consider that, and I appreciate it. I'm in the uncomfortable position of being the speaker to explain to you the problems with it. <laughs> and um, 
it is, it's the stuff of lawyers that we have to talk about what may appear to be esoteric to some and just plain boring to others. Um, but I've made a one-page outline, and it's the one-page outline of the issues I want to address tonight, as well as some recommendations I'd like to make if the League is going to propose um, some, uh, is going to make a resolution for a revision to the Marital Property Act. Um, how many people in here were familiar with the the fact that Wisconsin has a Marital Property Act that was passed in 1986. Okay, good. I have a very informed audience. I thought I would. Um, I was a kid in the law um, <laughs> when I worked on this issue and advocated for it with the legislature and um, spoke about it and addressed it in the context of my cases in my private practice. And that context, of course, was uh, where Wisconsin had equitable distribution and equitable financial uh, relationships in the context of divorce. But during the marriage, uh, married people, in some respects, had fewer economic rights than they did at the time of divorce. And that didn't seem right to a lot of people. And the Marital Property Act sort of leveled that to make sure that people who stay married at least have the same rights as those who get a divorce. That's a very simplistic explanation, but frankly, that was the biggest effect it had on a day-to-day -day basis for most people's lives. So here we have, all of a sudden, out of the blue, nobody expected, uh, Judge Crabb issues a decision saying, Wisconsin's ban on same-sex marriage is not constitutional. It immediately gets petitioned to the US Supreme Court. And those of us who very much follow these cases that are involved in these issues all decided that because there are so many districts and states and with cases going up, that this would be one of those situations where the US Supreme Court would pick certain cases to take all at once, would hear the oral arguments, and probably issue the decision in June of 2015, which is a common practice when they have a major issue and several states and districts are involved in them. So we were all stunned when, on October 6, 2014, the Supreme Court said, we're not taking any of these cases. We are allowing the decision, such as Judge Krabs, to simply stand. That is the law in your area. No one expected it. Now, that actually had an effect on what happens to our marital property law as it affects people who now can get married, same sex, or where we're coming across it right now in our practice is people who got married in other states or other countries before October 2014. All of a sudden now, Wisconsin recognizes their marriage. Well, what are the issues with that? Well, I'm going to give you one real case, because if I don't tell you it's real, you're going to think I made it up. <laughs> Two women got married in Canada. They moved to Wisconsin. They split up. Wisconsin did not recognize that marriage, and therefore they weren't allowed to get a divorce here. They broke up, and one of the women subsequently married a man, a marriage that was recognized. October 2014 comes along, and this woman calls our office. Actually, the next day. She called October 7th, 2014. 
oh my God, what about my first marriage? That was never divorced, never ended, and now I'm, re now I'm married to this guy. What do I do? Well, we're a very creative law office. <laughs> and the issue was, okay, think about this. This woman is a bigamist, okay, under the law, but she didn't know it until October 7th. So she says, if I get the divorce now in Wisconsin, which I can do from my first marriage, what about my second What about this marriage I've been in for a few years? We have kids. We own property. We've been filing joint tax returns. We've been acting like married people that were recognized. What do we do about this? And then the second question is, if I get divorced from my first spouse, what, what, what about the debts she's incurred since we broke up? What, what about my income? Do I have an obligation to support her? Under Marital Property Act, Married people have a mutual obligation of support. Married people can be responsible for each other's debts and obligations. Married people have presumed rights to each other, to property, regardless of whose name is on it. So they're sitting in our office, and my law partner, Christopher Krimmer, and I, and my colleague, Linda Robertson, we decide to just make it up. Okay, and well, Christopher is very clever, and what we remembered uh, in a totally different context is an estate case from 2011, and the issue there was, this was, a woman died. Her children said, our mother did not have the capacity to get married to this man who now is claiming her estate, and at the time they got married, she didn't have the capacity. So the issue was, is after a person's death, could a court find that marriage, can they annul a marriage? Can they divorce a person? Well, the answer to both of those is no. Once a person dies, the family court has no authority to divorce anybody or to annul a marriage. And so our Supreme Court in 2011 looked back at the line of cases that existed before our statutes on annulment and divorce and said, you know, courts have had authority to void marriages when the people, while they were married, did not have the capacity to validate it. Now, we can talk 20 minutes about each word in that sentence, okay? <laughs> and so we said, okay, these two women who came to Wisconsin had no ability to validate their marriage here. And they couldn't validate it they couldn't end it. So when one of them got married, there was nothing they could do. And luckily, a judge in Milwaukee recently agreed to void that first marriage. And we eliminated all these problems. There is nothing written anywhere that allows that, okay, <laughs> in this context. And had we had to deal with two divorces, you can, there's a lot of problems. So the issue that I wanted to address in my short time tonight is in the context of the League's proposal on what to recommend for having Chapter 766, the Marital Property Act, apply in marriages between same-sex couples. As I ask, you can look at the outline if you've got it or share, I ask that you consider the effect of the effective date of that. 
Because the Marital Property Act changes rights to property and income, when it was first passed, there was a lot of discussion about effective date and about what happens to the assets you own before that effective date and what you have afterward. And if the character of those assets can change during a marriage, there's lots of discussion, lots of legislative history around that. The same would be true in this situation, except we have blocks of time that are not quite like those in heterosexual marriages. For instance, a couple who residents of Wisconsin go to Iowa to get married because they couldn't get married here. They knew their marriage wasn't recognized in Wisconsin, but it was important to them to be married. They've been married for several years. They own property separately. They file in Wisconsin. They have to file single tax returns. And they were filing single federal returns. Okay. Well, then a case comes out of California many of you heard of, that said the federal government was going to recognize same-sex marriages. So now they're fi then they filed federal joint married returns in Wisconsin single returns. Okay? Then October comes along, and Wisconsin says, now, and now Wisconsin has to recognize this marriage. So you tell me, should these two people be responsible for each other's debts prior to October 6, 2014? Should these two people have an obligation to support each other for the period of time they were living together prior to October 6, 2014? This is the issue that we're having to start to deal with right now, is where there already was some complexity when the Marital Property Act passed of having mixed property classification during the transition, here we have these different pockets of time, depending on if people married in other states or other countries, how long they were married when they moved to Wisconsin. They've been in Wisconsin only six months before this, but were in a separate property state all the time before that. There's a lot of complexity here that is going to be resolved on a case-by-case -case basis. However, um, this can be the first group <laughs> to recommend consideration of the effective date of the Marital Property Act on marriages between same-sex partners. And I've made some recommendations here. And of course, there's not just one circumstance. We saw and we participated in these lovely weddings, spontaneous weddings that occurred after Judge Crabb's decision. And then in October, it's a more weddings and continue. Our weekends are now full of weddings again all of a sudden in my senior years. <laughs> um, but for those who already had been married elsewhere and are now dealing with what happened between then and now, sometimes those couples are still together and sometimes they're not. Sometimes they've married other people since then, and they've moved to other states, but one of the parties is still here. Sometimes they have children together. Sometimes they don't. Telling me to wind it up and take questions. See, I've just sort of whetted your appetite here on this. But the recommendations I have down here are pretty specific. And anytime you make a recommendation on legislation, I think... What Professor Melly and Weisberger can tell you is just the first recommendation needs to go through 
a lot of discussion and what ifs and people from different perspectives addressing all of the ramifications of it. I ask that you recommend that that issue of effective date be taken seriously and considered thoroughly. I've made some specific recommendations to um, address different circumstances. It really is open for discussion. Most people can't afford to go to court and litigate these issues. That's why it's really important that our statutes be clear enough that people can adjust their expectations when making marital property agreements, in making tax planning, estate planning, all of those things we all have to do, but now take into account different rights that are granted by statute. I'd be happy to take any questions. Are there any cases that have involved um, children in, yes. in, this, in Wisconsin? Yes. Could you talk about that a little bit? Um, the, well, I'll tell you the happy ones first. Okay. The happy case is this, is as of October 6, 2014, when marriages were recognized, trial judges were able to, and many have, allowed the non-biological parent in the partnership to have a step-parent adoption. That is new, not happened here before. I won't even go through all the legal fictions we engaged in to have both parents have legal rights. But now allowing step-parent adoptions, it's an inexpensive procedure, and it's now available for those couples who are raising children together. Okay, that's, that's the good news. The difficult news, as, as part of the Marital Property Act, while they're still married, there are mutual obligations of support. And while people are raising children together, but before they are the official step-parent adopted parent, they have no obligation of support. And so when they made agreements together during this time when there was no obligation, it was from the point of view, I have no obligation, so you're adding to it. Rather than making an agreement from the position of I have an obligation, so how are we going to adjust it if we are and if we can't? So we have situations where people have children that they've raised together. People have children they've raised separately, and they're like any blended family. But because of their limited ability to have official legal status with those children and the limitations on their support obligations, there are some complexities that we're having to parse out case by case. But understand, when people come to our office, this is not a majority. Most people don't go to a lawyer's office. They just sort of stumble through the best they can. But what will happen is if someone incurs a debt for that child, who's responsible? And when was it incurred? And was it for family purpose? Which family? Were they a family yet? Was it before or after October? I mean, those are questions that are coming up right now because of the obligations related to children and the limitations on your legal rights to them. Does that answer your question? Any other questions? So this is going to require case-by-case uh, -case decision making and which will prolong and you won't be able to make a recommendation that says we would like for you to do this. Actually, other than the ones I, I, you've stated. It, it's both. both. I, it, you can make the recommendations. Like I've suggested here actual dates. I'll just give you an example. Um, for couples married outside of Wisconsin who are no longer in a committed relationship with the person they married outside of Wisconsin, 
Chapter 766 shall not apply if a divorce is obtained by January 1, 2016. That's just a recommendation, okay? If there are a combination of recommendations and statutes, there will always be case-by-case -case determination, but at least there'll be some guidance. And what usually happens in an area of law that is so dynamic as family law is, is you have a law, you have real experiences, the law gets modified, you have more experiences, it gets modified. It's a, it's a dance. I've been practicing for 36 years. Every year there are revisions to both the statutes and case laws interpreting them. It never stops. This is just another area. But I recommend that we do have some statutory guidance against which trial judges all over 72 counties in this state can consider these issues and not have to make it up on their own. Let's give Linda our thanks. Thank the reason we have three such different um, speakers tonight is because we're being asked to look at expanding positions for the State League in all three of these areas. So if you think, my, this is a disjointed, we could have had three programs, well, by the end of February we need to make some decisions, so that's why the three topics tonight. Our second speaker, speaker is Lynn Breedlove. Uh, he has a BA from Dartmouth College in 1970 graduate studies at Harvard Business School. He was executive director of Div Disability Rights Wisconsin from 1980 to 2011. He's co-chair of the Survival Coalition of Wisconsin Disability Organizations. That was from 99 to 11. Board president of the National Disabilities Rights Network. He's gotten a citation from the Wisconsin State Legislature for an exceptional career in advocacy. He's had a commendation from the U.S. House of Representatives and is a Howard Eisenberg Lifetime Achievement Award. So Lynn is going to talk to us about disability rights. Lynn. Thank you. I don't have much time to say a lot about my views of people with disabilities. But I will just share with you one quote from Rabbi Krinsky, which to me sums up a lot of, of my feelings on the subject. He said, I don't believe that you can rank human beings. Every person has something to contribute to the welfare of the next human being. Everyone has something that another person does not have. And that's fun in my experience. I've gotten to know a lot of people with disabilities over the years, and I have a number of friends with physical disabilities, mental illness, people with intellectual disabilities. And I would say that um, every single one of them has something unique to contribute. And I would also say if you haven't had the chance to get to know anyone um, well who has a disability, uh, you're missing out on one of the rich aspects of our community. And maybe you'll still get that opportunity in the future. And if you do, I encourage you to take it. So as an advocate, um, I learned to be very clear-eyed about the four things that DHOC talks about. I don't know if you've heard of DHOC. He's the guy that actually invented the Visa card. Uh, so he was pretty wealthy when he retired and tried to start working on social change. Uh, but he says there's uh, four things that we all ought to be able to see clearly. Uh, we ought to be able to see the way things were, see them the way they are, see them the way they might become, and see them as they ought to be. 
So what I'm going to talk about tonight is two of these things. I'm going to talk about my perception of the way things are in the area of disability rights versus the way they ought to be. And ironically, the way things ought to be is actually spelled out pretty clearly in current law and in the Constitution. Uh, if you read these documents, you would feel like, at least on paper, things are going pretty good for people with disabilities. If you looked at their rights in the Constitution, their rights in the Americans with Disabilities Act, the Help America Vote Act, federal fair housing laws, the Rehab Act, Wisconsin's family care laws, and the federal right to education laws. You read those, you think, boy, we really covered the, the bases pretty well. The rights of people with disabilities in the United States uh, look pretty solid. But uh, let me ask you this. Have any of you seen the movie Selma recently? Okay, do you remember the scene when Dr. King is meeting in the Oval Office with President Johnson, and he says, the biggest obstacle facing the Negro people right now, Mr. President, is the right to vote. Do you remember what the president said? He said, well, wait a minute, the Constitution says you already have that right. And as soon as he said it, he knew what Dr. King clearly knew, and that was just having that on paper didn't mean that you really had that right. And that's what I'm going to talk to you about tonight in terms of disability rights. And I just picked a few examples of key areas of rights to illustrate this. One is the area of inclusive education. The law says that students have the right to be in the least restrictive environment, which means if a student's capable of being in a regular classroom, they should not be in a timeout room. They should not be in a separate classroom. It's just for students with disabilities. It says that all students, including students with disabilities, have a right to a full school day. It says that students have a right to supports that are individualized to their particular learning needs that would enable them to participate in the classroom along with other students. It also says you have a right to attend your neighborhood school. And you have a right to school choice in Wisconsin. Well, the reality on the right-hand side is that We've had two pretty big rounds of school funding cuts in the last two budgets. And that has eroded the funding for individual supports for students with disabilities. So in the past, when parents could reasonably expect that if there was a classroom of 25 kids and their son or daughter had an intellectual disability, they could expect that there would be some extra assistance in the classroom in addition to what the regular teacher was teaching everyone else, that there might be some assistance available for their son or daughter to keep up with, with what was going on. Well, with school cuts, a lot of those instructional aid positions have been eliminated. Uh, and that's true uh, in Madison, but in a lot of other districts as well. So that right to individualized supports has become sort of theoretical for some of these students. The right to attend your neighborhood school, it turns out a lot of school districts have decided, well, it's more efficient for us to concentrate our special education resources in one school. And that could be a town where maybe there's uh, six elementary schools or eight elementary schools. 
So then what happens is those kids from all over that city get bused to that one school. And in that school are all the students, K through eight, who have disabilities. So of course, the first thing you get is a disproportionate ratio of those students. It's not a, it's not a cross section of the whole town. It's a much bigger percentage of students with disabilities there. So it's not really like um, the community itself. It's not like a cross section of the community. It also, of course, means that if you're eight and your big brother's 10 and he's going to the neighborhood school and your playmates in your neighborhood go to that school and you could be walking to that school with your brother, but no, it's a cluster school. You won't be able to go to school with your brother or walk with him or be in the school with your neighborhood friends. You're going to be on the other side of town, which, of course, has an effect on your development, your social life, your friendships, etc. Surprisingly, a lot of students only get a two or three hour school day. There's a number, there's an increasing number of examples, and some of this is related to school funding cuts, where schools are just saying, you know, we just can't cope with your son for a full day. He's a handful. You better keep him home at the after, in the afternoon. Just bring him in the morning. Now, that's illegal. Theoretically, those families could sue to, to fix that. But just like Linda Belay was saying, a lot of people don't think of litigation. That's not their style. But also, they may not have the resources to go retain a lawyer to, to make that lawsuit. So they just take what they can get, which is a half day of school. Some neighborhood schools are inaccessible. If your son or daughter uses a wheelchair, there's schools, including some schools in Madison, where you can't get to the second floor. Uh, you may not even be able to get to the first floor. There's steps to get up to there. So that, of course, undermines your capacity to choose that school. And what a lot of people don't realize about the school choice law in Wisconsin is that your family could choose another school for you, but that school could say, A, we're full, or B, uh, we don't want to deal with your particular kind of disability, so uh, no, that's not going to work. So school choice has actually uh, got some strings attached. Fair housing, the law says that uh, people below a certain income have a right to affordable, accessible housing, that they should have choice of location, they should have the option of congregate housing versus single-family dwelling or apartments. The reality is a lot of Wisconsin communities don't have subsidized housing. So if you grow up in Cross Plains and that's where your family is and that's where your friends are and that's where you went to school and it's time to find a place to live and move out of your parents' home, there may not be an option to that. So you're going to have to move to Madison. And too bad that your roots are in Cross Plains and that's where you people you know are, that's not going to happen for you. There's long waiting lists for a lot of uh, public housing. And when you finally get to the top of that list after waiting two, three, four years, there's a strong feeling, I better take whatever they offer me. I, I better not be uh, arguing about choice at that point because I've been waiting a long time. And if this is my alternative to being homeless, I think I better take what they give me. A lot of the housing stock is in disrepair. Public funding hasn't kept up with the need to, you know, replace old worn out windows, repaint buildings. So some of the places that people live, including in Madison, are not very nice places to live. And sometimes congregate housing is the only option. So 
even if you didn't want to live with uh, 40 other people with disabilities, that's where the opening is. So take it or leave it. Voting, there's been some good news. Since the Help America Vote Act was passed, there actually has been a big improvement in terms of accessibility of voting sites. Ten years ago, uh, we had a really large number of voting sites that people in wheelchairs could not get to. We had a lot of church, church basements uh, with no elevators, and basically uh, what could happen is you could either vote absentee or you could go to the voting place and maybe somebody would come upstairs and bring you a ballot and wait while you filled it out um, on the front steps and they'd take it back down for you. Uh, there's not, we don't hear much about that now. It seems like a lot of those places have been phased out. Unfortunately, some of the voting places, all they're accessible, they're hard to get to if you don't have a car. So that becomes a deterrent. And then now voter ID is a problem. Uh, a lot of people with disabilities don't have driver's license. And uh, unfortunately, voter ID law does not allow you to use your Medicaid card or your Medicare card or your Social Security card as a voter ID. So the IDs that some people with disabilities would have, they're no good at the voting place. So you gotta go to DMV, you gotta get a non-driver uh, photo ID, but if you don't have a car and you know, you live in Stoughton, you're going to have to get somebody to do you a favor and get you there so you can get your ID. So um, it's getting harder now for people to vote compared to what it was. In the Americans with Disabilities Act, there's a provision that's now been called the integration mandate that was clarified by the U.S. Supreme Court in, a, in the Olmstead decision, which was a decision involving two women in Georgia who were living in a very expensive public institution, $500 a day is what it cost for them to be there, and they said, we don't want to live here. We'd actually like to live back at our home community, and for us to live there with the supports we need to live in the community, we wouldn't even need $500 a day. So why, if the taxpayer's spending $500 for us to be in the big house, why couldn't we be in a regular neighborhood in a regular home for $300 a day, save the taxpayers some money, and we get to live where we want. Well, the Supreme Court decided that makes sense. And basically, that is now the law of the land, um, which would make you think that anyone who's in an institution, a publicly funded institution, would be able to move to where they want to move to. Unfortunately, it's not quite that easy. In Wisconsin, we still have two large state institutions, Central Centers here in Dane County, Southern Centers in Racine County. We've got several hundred people living there. A lot of those people have pretty severe intellectual disabilities. They don't know about the ADA. They don't know about the Olmstead decision. No one's necessarily going in there and saying, hey, by the way, uh, if you want to move out now, you could. So a lot of those people are just kind of left in the shadows. And right now, there's no current initiative in Wisconsin to make sure that those people get a chance to live in the community if that's where they would prefer to live. The last one I'll talk to you about is integrated employment. The law says, this is a, another manifestation of the ADA, the law says you have a right to be in the most integrated setting, not only where you live, but also where you spend your day. So that means you should not have to be in a sheltered workshop if you would prefer to get a job in the community and get support to get that job. The Rehab Act says that you have the right to individualize services to pursue employment. 
And a number of states, not Wisconsin, but a number of states have what is being called employment first laws, which basically say when your school eligibility ends and you move into the adult service system, the first option ought to be support to get a job in the community. It should not be a sheltered workshop. That should be a last resort. Unfortunately, in Wisconsin, many, many more people with developmental disabilities are in sheltered workshops than in community jobs. Um, a lot of counties don't have programs that would support people to get community jobs. Only about 5% of the working age people in our long-term care system have real jobs. And a lot of people are considered unemployable before they even get to the point of, of getting services to help them get jobs. So we've got a long way to go. Uh, if you look at national rankings, Wisconsin's in the bottom one-third of the United States now in terms of the unemployment rates uh, for people with disabilities. So um, the handout that Kathy mentioned to you, um, the one I chose to give you is one from an organization that's totally composed of people with disabilities. It's called People First Wisconsin. And 10 or 15 years ago, when people would talk to you about, well, what do people with disabilities need, you'd be hearing from parents or professional advocates like me. But in this case, we actually have uh, grassroots organizations now that are politically active of people with disabilities themselves. They are actually identifying their own priorities. This, this handout is something that they created, and it actually talks about the things that are most important to them. And as far as um, the league getting involved in disability issues, I think the first two things on this handout, jobs and education, are the most important areas. And what I've discovered with people with disabilities is if people can get off the dole and get a job, a job that they like, that pays decent, that becomes the beginning of, of a new life for people. It's when you have a decent wage that's greater than what you'd get in a benefits check. That's when you can start aspiring to live in a decent place. You could leave public housing. Uh, you could really choose where you want to live. You could start buying better clothes. You could start going out to the movies, going out to dinner, having vacations. I mean, that's when life begins for people is when they get a job. So to me, with 5% of the people in our long-term care system of working age who have employment, we have so much untapped potential in terms of the employability of the other 95% of those people. And there are initiatives right now that are being promoted in the state budget that would affect employment. And the next thing that's closely related is education. And you, you see what the People First members who were polled said, nearly half of the people with disabilities said school did not prepare them for the job they wanted. So if we can improve what schools are doing to help people get ready for work, and then we can actually give people real services and supports for work in the community. I think that could have the biggest transforming effect. And the, the last page of your handout, I gave you three links. One is for People First, the organization that created that handout. One is for the Survival Coalition, which is the big statewide coalition of disability organizations. And the third one is Disability Rights Wisconsin, where I used to work. If you look on those websites, you will see a number of employment and school-related initiatives for the state budget. And I would, you know, I think disability advocates and people with disabilities would welcome the league's support for any of those initiatives. So I'm not gonna just draw your attention to one and say that's the best one. I think 
you could look at them yourself and see what you think. Okay, so I just want to finish up on a little more upbeat note, because obviously I was telling you <clears throat> the reality falls far short of what the law says on paper. But um, I just want to introduce you to uh, some young people with disabilities in Wisconsin who I've gotten to know, who have good jobs, who are doing well, who have a good life, uh, and I feel like the prospects for them are really good. And these people are examples, I think, of what could happen for a lot more people with disabilities. Um, Sophia is a young woman in Wauwatosa. Um, she got a job at the Medical College of Wisconsin. The way she got it is she and her mom were canvassing for Obama the first time Obama ran for office. And she met this woman, and the woman was asking her, so what do you do? And she said, well, I'm looking for a job. And said, what kind of job are you looking for? And the woman said, gee, you know, uh, I work at the medical college. There might be an opening for you. Uh, why don't you give me your phone number, and I'll call you up. And one thing led to another, and she got a job interview and got a job there. Uh, she has Down syndrome, um, but she was in regular classes most of the time in school. Uh, when she was 12 years old, she figured out that she didn't really want to have to be shuttled around by her parents anymore. So she learned how to use the public bus system, which in Milwaukee is pretty complex. She uses that to get to work. She uses it to get downtown. Um, and so she's a pretty independent person. Still living with her parents now in her mid-20s, but when I ask her her plans for the future, she says, you know, as soon as I have enough money, I want to move out of here. So, um, and she also wants to go to community college. Uh, Pam is a woman uh, in Kenosha who uses a power wheelchair. She uh, had foster parents. When she graduated high school, she said she wanted to go to college. Her parents said, well, we don't really think you're college material. We don't think you could do very well. Uh, we're going to uh, facilitate you going into a sheltered workshop. She went into a sheltered workshop. She didn't want to be there. Her dream was to go to college, get a real job. She started going to college online. She got her associate's degree in, in child care online. And after that, she got her certification as a child care teacher. And she was doing all this while she was in the sheltered workshop during the day. Then... Through a friend, she got a shot at a job in a, a daycare center. She's now a certified childcare uh, teacher in a daycare center. And imagine she's got 24-year-olds, and she can't get out of her wheelchair. So that takes some real teaching skills. I mean, Ellen, you can imagine, right? Keeping those kids in line, you know, and you can't get out of your chair. Um, Sarah is 16 years old in Chicago. Another woman, she, she has muscular dystrophy. She used a wheelchair since she was a really small kid. She saw that the non-disabled kids in her high school were getting part-time jobs and summer jobs, and that's how they seemed to have more spending money than she did. So she told her mom she wanted to get a part-time job. She started working as an aide in a nursing home. Then uh, she liked that kind of work. She went on, got her bachelor's in social work, got her master's in mental health counseling, She's now the director of social services at Mercy Rehab Facility in Milwaukee. She's a supervisor there. She's doing really well. Uh, got her own apartment. Um, she you, uh, has her own vehicle with uh, hand controls. Uh, pretty impressive person. And the last one um, is one of the most amazing stories I've ever heard. Andy Thane lives in Thorpe, Wisconsin. Anybody know where that is? Northwest. Um, he's got cerebral palsy. Grew up on a family farm. When he was about eight years old, his dad said, 
looks like you're not going to be able to do much farm work. You better stay on your studies and good, good grades because you're going to have to make a living with your brain. I don't think you're going to be baling hay with us. Um, and sure enough, he got good grades. Uh, told his guidance counselor he wanted to go Marquette. Our, his guidance counselor said, well, that's a good school, but it's pretty hard. You better, you know, have two or three backups. He said, no, I don't want to have backup. I only want to go to one school, and that's Marquette. That's where I'm going. He applied. He got in. He got there, discovered he was the only student on campus in a wheelchair, and discovered that it wasn't a very successful campus. Registered for a couple classes and discovered they were on the third floor in a walk-up. Went to administration and said, gee, I really wanted to be in that class. And they had to move the class so he could get there. So he was kind of a, you know, a frontier blazer for Marquette. And that wasn't that long ago. This guy's not even 30 yet. Got his degree in business administration. Applied for a bunch of jobs, didn't get any. Moved back to Thorpe and got a job as a receptionist in a home care agency. Kind of learned the ropes just by watching what was going on. Then he decided gee, I think I could create one of these agencies myself. Quits his job to his parents' dismay, goes back to his bedroom in the family farm where he grew up, and from his bedroom, he, gets, he incorporates a new corporation. He submits his papers to, for Medicaid certification with the state of Wisconsin. He gets it. He starts his agency with serving one person, and now, as of the last time I talked to him last fall, he has 150 clients. The name of his agency, AT, that's his initials, kind of clever, at home, Andy Thane, home care. Um, he's got 130 employees. He's the largest employer in Thorpe, Wisconsin. And this is a man with a pretty serious physical disability. So um, that gives you a glimpse of what's possible. I think the sky's the limit for people with disabilities, and hopefully we'll see more stories like these. Hold on to your questions until Brian is done. Brian Jokums works with G-SAFE since 2002 and has volunteer experience going back to 1998. He currently serves as Senior Director of Education and Policy, where he manages the educator training program and leads policy work with school districts. Prior to GSAFE, Brian served as director of the University of Wisconsin-Madison LGBT Campus Center and as coordinator for a teen peer education program for youth services of Southern Wisconsin. Brian holds a BA from Luther College, so welcome, Brian. As Kathy said, my name is Brian J. I'm with GSAFE. Uh, GSAFE is an organization based in Madison, but we work statewide um, with uh, students, with educators, with parents, with community members, with schools. Um, and our goal is to help um, um, lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender youth thrive in school. And we're really working for just schools for that student population. And what, like, for us, what we're most concerned about, where we get really concerned, is that we're really concerned about the experiences of some of our most vulnerable students in our uh, public education. And um, for us, that means we're really thinking about um, what's happening for um, lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender youth of color, um, as well as just uh, transgender students. Um, and so those are some of the areas that um, we tend to focus on. Tim, are you ready for the mic? So I know um, 
when we talk about lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, questioning, LGBTQ, the acronym, it keeps getting longer and longer and longer. So um, we always like to take a step back and do some really basic um, terminology and go over that. So I'm, I'm Tim, I work with Brian, I'm the manager of GSA Outreach. So I work with uh, Gay Straight Alliances, which are uh, clubs that students form in high schools and middle schools in Wisconsin to be able to talk about these issues with their peers in their schools. Um, so really quickly, terminology. First, like sex and gender. These two words, a lot of times they get used interchangeably um, and people think that they mean the same, same thing, but we use them very differently in our work. So, so biological sex, when I was born, the doctor pulled me out, took a look and said, it's a boy, right? Like, so biological sex is simply the body that you were born with, the parts that you were born with. And how that's different from gender then, so when we think about like gender identity is when you close your eyes and think about who you are as a person, your innate sense of self, that's your gender. So for some people, for lots of people, their biological sex and their gender identity match. So for me, the doctor said it's a boy and I identify as a man. So for me, those two things match. But for some folks, that's not the case, right? Like, so they were declared to be a certain biological sex at birth, and then at some point in their life, they realized that maybe that didn't actually work for them, and they identify with a different gender. So that's what we mean when we talk about the word transgender in particular. Um, so gender expression, how that's different then is really like, this is how I communicate my gender to you, to the world. So the way that I dress, the way that I style my hair, the name that I use, all of these things, these are our gender expression. Um, and then all of that is separate from sexual orientation, which is being straight, being gay, being bisexual. Really that's about who you're attracted to, who you're drawn to. So transgender, right? So that these are folks who they were um, assigned one biological sex at birth, and now they identify with a different gender. That's transgender, and that trans, um, so I went to school for linguistics, so I like to break, break words down for folks. So trans means across, right, on the other side. So cis means on the same side. So if your biological sex and your gender match up, like for me, then you're cisgender. So another way of saying that is, is not transgender. Well, this isn't perhaps what you wanted to hear, but what's wrong with the word homosexual to describe gay and lesbian people and perhaps this transgender business? I don't, I have sure. never understood what was wrong with that word. Sure. That's a great question, and briefly, um, um, because Tim and I work with young people, we're a challenge for our organization is always every generation has their own language to describe and talk about their experiences and their understanding of themselves. So one is like at one point people use the term homosexual quite frequently to talk about themselves and experience. I am not speaking for the entire um, LGBT community, but my my experience is. Um, particularly in the 80s when the, uh, uh, there was a backlash against um, progress made for LGBT people, and at the time it was mostly just lesbian gay people. Um, one of the things that happened is oftentimes um, the people who were seeking to deny, uh, deny rights um, or 
um, access to um, um, just basic resources for uh, lesbian and gay people, um, used the term homosexual. It became the homosexual agenda, and it like became this really like word that was used by the religious right um, to talk about our community. Um, which like so when you hear that, for me, one when I hear people say homosexual, it's almost always was in the context of it was a religious right or people representing some. Um, uh, uh, views that says I don't have the right to be who I am, um, either at uh, state house meetings or at community meetings or school boards. So one that has a, a visceral re reaction for me based on my own experience. And I think also um, um, homosexual feels very clinical, um, and it's like kind of like, and there's sex in it. So and it's like oftentimes LGBT people um, um, are characterized or stereotyped as being all about sex. Um, and so just getting away from that word, I think, has been just kind of where we've been going. Um, I don't think it's a, uh, it's not an inaccurate word, but I think if you talk to a lot of um, lesbian, gay, bisexual um, people today, they might um, chafe at that word a little bit or feel like it's either very clinical or been used against them in hurtful and harmful ways. Does that kind of help? So that's just me speaking from my own personal experience. So cool. Any, any? I was surprised that the, the graph shows in protective factors all below the line are loved by family, teachers care, belong at school, earn mostly A's and B's. That's all below the line. Right. All those things. Right. And so the, the information that you're looking at is um, the Dane County Youth Assessment. Um, and what you're saying is that that, uh, that study found that uh, gay, lesbian, bisexual, and questioning or unsure students were less likely than their um, heterosexual or straight peers to say that I feel loved by my family or I feel like I've got a supportive adult at school or I get A's or B's. Um, yeah, so that one stood out to you. Cool. I felt like there was one more hand and then we're going to move on. The, <laughs> Watch out for the mic. I have the percentages of uh, about support and what the environment is like for these people. And it's, it's sort of uh, shocking to read it all and I wondered if you can give us a hint of the direction that these things are going in. Is Are you are we going to learn some of the yeah. ways that this is getting help? <laughs> yep, yep. So, and you're looking at uh, what's happening for transgender students, which we knew that things weren't very good um, for a lot of transgender students, but the data is very, like, even when we see the data, we're like, oh, things aren't going well for um, transgender students. So we're going to talk about that, actually to what um, Lynn was talking about. Like, we know that there are laws in place to protect LGBT students in schools. So, you know, First Amendment students have a right to be out at school. And um, uh, student, like, schools have to protect their LGBT students from harassment on an equal basis. So there are lots of laws in place at the federal level and at the state level that are there to protect LGBT students. but. Laws are only as helpful as people know that they exist and know how to use them. And so there are lots and lots of administrators that don't know that these laws are in place to protect LGBT students. Um, there are lots of parents who don't know that they can use these laws to keep their young people, their children safe. And there are lots of students who also don't know that these laws are in place to protect them. What we know about as far as gaps in rights and equality for lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender students, um, there's a couple that we want to talk about. Um, one of the laws that we have, uh, one law that I am going to talk about um, here in Wisconsin is the, the state statute 118.13, which is Wisconsin's Pupil Non-Discrimination Act or law. 
um, which essentially says schools cannot discriminate in curricular or non-curricular settings on a whole list of enumerated classes, so like sex, race, creed, um, disability, et cetera. Um, back in the um, mid-80s, early mid-80s, Wisconsin was the first state to add sexual orientation to that list of protected classes, which was great, although most schools didn't necessarily act on that at the time or weren't necessarily aware of that. But nevertheless, it's been in our state non-discrimination policy for some time. Um, what we don't have is that, um, and where we're behind as a state, is many states around the country, um, as well as just school districts around the country, have taken the step to add uh, gender identity, gender expression, and some um, also include gender nonconformity to those non-discrimination policies. And that's the language that we talk about, as Tim mentioned earlier. Um, when we talk about transgender students specifically, that's the type of language that we find is helpful in creating clear expectations that we're not going to discriminate against our transgender students. Um, um, so that's one of those things that uh, we've been working with local school districts um, in Wisconsin to get them to change that on a, on a district level. Um, we'd like to see state level change. And um, I should say that back in, um, would have been late 2010, whenever, um, at the end of Governor Doyle's um, administration, um, uh, Superintendent Evers actually did put forward uh, administrative uh, policy change. Um, so the DPI's own internal policies to actually include those. Um, but when Doyle exited and then Walker came in, that proposal got pulled away and then um, the state superintendent's ability to create those administrative code changes changed. Um, and so we're kind of, we almost had some progress there and then it uh, took a step back. Um, but so we need, as a state, um, we need our, our non-discrimination policies, our non-discrimination laws modernized and to catch up with where other states are at to, uh, to include particular protections for transgender students. Um, we also know that, um, so policy is great, of course, um, but you know, a policy can be in place, but a school district might not have any idea that either it's there or not sure exactly what to do with that and provide guidance. So in addition to those policies, um, we've been working with schools to say, all right, so you say that you're not going to discriminate against transgender students. How are you going to actually implement that? What is that going to mean for students in regards to their names and records um, in the, the school database? What's that going to mean as far as their access to sports, um, to restrooms? Um, what does that mean when you go on a school field trip and have overnight accommodations? Like just kind of all those practical things that come up um, for students. Um, so one of the things that we're really encouraging folks, uh, uh, individual school districts to do is to provide some clear guidance. Uh, we also know, um, as I pointed out, um, the data that this group, this side of the room looked at is the Dane, uh, the Dane County Youth Assessment, which is the only um, survey in the state um, and one of the few in the country that actually, again, allows students to identify as transgender. We need more data. We need to have um, um, schools, all schools, asking about that. We need the Wisconsin Department of Public Instruction to include that in their statewide youth risk behavior survey. Because without data, um, we know that schools are very data-driven uh, and decision makers are very data-driven. And when you're not actually even asking the question about a person's identity, it's hard to get that data. Um, we also know that, particularly for our trans, uh, for our youth of, our lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender youth of color, um, some of the things that they experience on a day-to-day -day basis in school is um, um, disproportionate policing as well as surveillance. And what I mean by that is um, their experience in school is very different from their white peers. Um, that means that um, you know um, they disproportionately have the police called on them to come into, like, the police to actually come into the school whether that's because they talked back to somebody, they got in a fight, um, um, sometimes they dress in a certain way, um, sometimes they express themselves in a certain way, and what's happened is that 
um, their just sense of being um, um, has been criminalized and they've been, uh, um, they often experience police coming into the school where a white student doing um, the exact same behavior, the, um, expressing themselves in the very same way wouldn't necessarily be um, um, handled in that same situation. We also know that, um, and connected to that then, is harsh discipline um, as well as victim blaming. So, and that's for our LGBT youth of color as well as for our transgender students. Um, our, those populations are disproportionately punished. Like, again, if a white cisgender um, student um, acts out in certain ways or um, does certain things, the, the, the punishment is different. Um, and we know that both anecdotally and through some national research. We also know that sometimes if a student um, is targeted for bullying or you know, gets beaten up because they wore lipstick, if uh, they're a boy or whatever, or wore certain clothes, what often happens still is that school administrators, school teachers, parents, um, the system blames them for um, what happened to them as opposed to addressing um, the, 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 the people that are actually perpetrating that behavior against them. So we know that that's going on. Some suggestions uh, or next steps. So um, I think a lot of times the conversation around LGBT youth is automatically about bullying. And you know we, we know that bullying is happening and bullying is a problem, right? Um, but there are so many other things that LGBT youth are facing in schools. And there's some of the same things that students of color are facing. And there's some of the same things that students with disabilities are facing. So. Um, what we always encourage folks to do, like if you're if you're thinking about school board policies, if you're like listening to folks who are running the school board, like what are they what are they talking about? So a big one is, um, uh, you know, have folks heard about like the achievement gap, right? Like we hear people talk about the achievement gap, particularly for students of color, saying that, you know, students of color in Wisconsin, when you look at their test scores and how they're doing compared to white students, the gap is the biggest in Wisconsin than it is anywhere else. And so we encourage folks to think about that rather than like an achievement gap, but actually that there are barriers to achievement for those students. And some of those same barriers exist for LGBT students. So if we're thinking about who's running for your local school board, is this something that they're talking about? Are they talking about what they're doing to address some of those barriers that exist for students of color, for LGBT students. Um, we really encourage schools to start looking at adopting restorative practices rather than just punitive policies. A lot of times, if harassment happens or if students are in a conflict with one another, um, if there's a fight, then automatically the students might just get suspended. There's this punishment that's handed out rather than actually bringing in folks to sit down with the students and say, okay, so what happened? Why did you get into this fight? And we know that if you just punish a student, if you suspend them for something, they're not gonna learn anything from that experience and you know they might turn around and do the same thing. And because we know that certain groups of students get punished more than others, we really encourage, and, and there are schools that are doing this, even here in Madison, that have started incorporating more restorative practices, helping young people navigate conflict in a different way. Um, and similarly, as Brian was talking about, more and more schools are bringing in what they call educational resource officers. So we have police officers in schools that are dealing with issues that, you know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, a, a guidance counselor might have handled that situation. And so now when students get into a conflict, 
the police are called and the police handle it and students are getting arrested in our schools for some very minor things like you know, insubordination or talking back. Students might get arrested by police in our schools and that's something that we really need to look at um, in terms of how are we keeping schools safer for all students. Yeah, and it, uh, the other things that need to happen, I already mentioned um, we need uh, local policy. So, um, so GSAFE, one of the, again, what we're doing is right now our strategy is we ultimately want to see statewide change in the statewide non-discrimination policy, but knowing that the current climate right now, that's going to be a, a slog. Um, um, so what we've been doing is, I, th I think that's an accurate description. So uh, it's doable, but it's, a slog. it's going to be a slog. Madison is one of the, uh, the local school districts that actually have non-discrimination, um, clear protections for transgender students, as well as Middleton Cross Plains. Um, so there, there's about 66 school districts around the state of Wisconsin that actually have um, trans-inclusive non-discrimination policies, but we'd like to see more. Um, so if you have access to different districts, either um, you know um, places you're connected to, have family that you you know lived and worked in or grew up in, that could be helpful to ask school districts. You know, do you provide those protections for these students? Um, we, again, we do want uh, the statewide policy change, um, and that's something that we would love to talk with the League of Women, Women Voters about um, about just how to make that happen. I already talked about the need for data. Um, ask school district that you're connected to. It's like, what are the experiences of our lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender students of color, and what's the experience of our transgender students? And if they don't have that data, ask them how they're going to get that. Um, and then finally, um, for us, um, um, and this is just anecdotal, but I think it's really important to reevaluate um, candidates and elected officials. So I know that sometimes we get really excited about a candidate because they talk about supporting lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender people. But sometimes when they're talking about that, they're only talking about white, middle class, uh, lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender people, and they forget about the experiences of people of color, people with disabilities, people with, or um, uh, people who are immigrants. So for instance, I think about our own Sheriff Mahoney, um, who is generally regarded as a really pro-LGBT um, supporter, is considered really supportive of um, the LGBT community, but we also know that his policies on immigrants and his, stat his stances on immigration um, are pretty problematic and um, um, tear apart families um, as well, you know, separate tear apart families. And so for a white, lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender person, he seems pretty good. But for someone who might be Latino and undocumented um, and also LGBT, um, like his policies and stances actually aren't particularly helpful. Um, and as we look at a person as a whole person, um, we start to see it's like, oh wait, maybe we need to push some of our elected officials or reconsider or um, ask them to think about how do we support the whole of, of an, uh, a lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender person, if that makes sense. So anyway, okay. thank you. Thank you. <laughs> if you have questions for either Lynn, Brian, or Tim, there you go. Uh, my question would be for either of you, I guess, but um, for institutions like schools, it seems to me that one of the biggest changes, aside from the policy, is that the actual people dealing with these kids day in and day out, the teachers, the administrators, have to have the right mindset. Mm -hmm. And that can be a hard thing to change if you grew up in a certain era yeah. or if you have a certain religious background that doesn't accept some of these things. So how you can change all the laws you want, but as you said, it doesn't necessarily actually happen until those minds and hearts have been changed. So how do we go about... Do you have training programs, educational programs for those people who actually have the contact day to day? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and actually, we work with uh, the uh, Wisconsin Department of Public Instruction to provide trainings for uh, school districts around the state. 
Um, and one of the strategies that we take with educators is um, to talk about we all get to have our own personal views and beliefs um, um, on this issue as well as other issues, but then we talk about what's the professional obligation and responsibility, so how can we recognize that our job is to welcome all students as they come to us, um, and how do we do that in a way that we still get to be ourselves, but also remember what our professional responsibility is. Plus, we do storytelling and sharing and helping them feel it a little bit. Probably more of a established set of trainings for uh, teachers that are working with students with disabilities. You know, I suspect what these guys are talking about is is more new. And I don't know, is it required or is it more discretionary? So, like yeah. some school districts are probably pretty conscientious, and some yeah. not so much. Yeah. yeah, yeah. There's no requirement to uh, that schools provide uh, training, or even um, um, schools of education provide training for um, uh, teachers and training on these issues. So yeah, there's no requirement. Right. I mean, the other thing is, you know, my daughter's a lesbian. She went to West High School, and I think there's an issue for uh, LGBTQ students of safety and bullying that's probably more substantial than it is for a lot of students with disabilities. You know, when I was, one of the stats that jumped out at me was, you know, 15 times the likelihood of being bullied if you're a transgender student than if you're not a transgender student. I don't think that ratio is quite so extreme for students with disabilities. So to me, the issue of training for teachers, particularly to ensure the safety of all students, it seems to me that's a pretty big deal for the students you guys are talking about. My question is for Lynn. On uh, your last slide where you had two bulleted sides, um, the last item you had on one of things as they are uh, was that um, someone with disabilities could be deemed unemployable, I think was the phrase. Who determines that? Is there something in writing that says how that decision is made? And what recourse or resources are available to such a person? You know, the Division of Vocational Rehabilitation, which is inside the Department of Workforce Development, they are funded by funds through the Rehabilitation Act. And the Rehabilitation Act basically says, you know, every person with a disability has a right to individualized supports to help them pursue employment. But there's this sort of catch-22 in there, and that is, if the Division of Voc Rehab does an assessment of the person and basically decides, eh, we just don't think you would be able to get a job, so we're not going to waste taxpayer dollars on helping you pursue a goal that's really not attainable. And unfortunately, they can just kind of exclude people from the process right off the bat. Now, people can appeal that, and some people do, but I think a lot of people are just discouraged by that. And it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. You know, you're too disabled to work, so the person goes home and accepts that as the final word on the subject, and they don't appeal, and they don't pursue a job, and that's the end of it. And to me, that's one of the reasons that Wisconsin has a much higher unemployment rate of people with disabilities than a lot of other states do, because I think a lot of other states, especially these employment-first states, are starting out with the assumption that everybody can work, it's just a matter of what kind of supports are people going to need to be able to work. First of all, I have to say for all three of you, you are inspiring, and we really appreciate your being here this evening. Lynn, the four stories that you shared are 
just incredible. And the more stories that can be shared, I think the more people are really, really become understanding of, of issues. And the, the other thing that I wanted to mention is that I was very grateful that you alluded to the fact that in the Madison School District, we have several neighborhood schools which are not accessible and not ADA compliant. And there is a referendum in Madison on April 7th to try to re rectify some of that. But I really appreciated your mentioning that. Just to mention Andy Thane, when I met him in Thorpe, I'd never heard of him before. And he was not someone who was known in the disability community. And he had been working so hard to create his business, he didn't have time to get her out and do any speeches or anything. And after I met him, I said, Andy, you know, your story is so amazing. You know, we got to figure out a way to tell it. And he goes, well, what do you suggest? So there was a statewide conference, 600 people this past fall. And he and I were on the stage together. And I, I interviewed him in front of this audience of 600 people. And they didn't know the they didn't know the end of the story. It just started out. See, oh Andy, you grew up on a farm, went to Marquette. They just kept building, building, building. At the end, you know, you're the you know you're the founder and the CEO of a corporation employing 130 people. You're the biggest employer in your town. You know, you got a standing ovation. But that was really fun to just sort of pull back the curtain on his story for all these people. You referenced the um, success stories that. Uh, we're told. Uh, I'd like to just say that GSAFE has a wonderful celebration every spring uh, where uh, people are uh, given opportunities to talk about their experiences and their successes and achievements. Uh, there are awards for leadership in schools and maybe you want to just say when that's going to be because uh, if you were able to come to that any spring you will be just thrilled to hear what people are doing and how kids are achieving against many, many odds. I'm not even planted in the audience. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say we did not pay her, so um, thank you for those kind words. Um, yeah, so um, I can't remember the exact date, but it's always the Saturday before Mother's Day. Um, so it's May 9th um, is this year. Um, um, it is, And it really is a wonderful experience. And it makes me think about the fact that Oftentimes we talk about here's what's not going well for or lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender students, um, but it's also a good it's a good reminder that um, despite a lot of the challenges and obstacles, many of many lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender um, um, students are thriving and doing really well and doing amazing things um, and amazing leadership. Um, so yeah, thank you for that nice plug. Thank you. Part of the problem for disabled people are federal laws relating to how much they can earn before they lose benefits. I, I don't think that's changed in a few decades. Like, There's limit is $65 a month, and uh, you go over that, and then you start getting in trouble with the feds. So why is there no effort, or I haven't heard of any effort, to try and get this limit changed or the $2,000 limit in assets? There's some good news there, and that is that um, it used to be if you hit a certain income level and you went beyond it, you would totally lose your Medicaid card. And of course, a lot of people with disabilities have substantial health care expenses. So 
lot of people felt like, well, I just can't afford to earn more than that because I, I won't, you know, I can't get health insurance uh, because of my pre-existing condition and I can't pay for it, so I just got to stay below that limit. Now there's something called the Medicaid Purchase Plan where you can go beyond those income limits and you will have a very small copay. And as your income goes up, your copay will go up a little bit more, a little bit more. So you can still be in the Medicaid program. So you could have a job in a place that doesn't provide health insurance. You'd have your Medicaid card. If you go above those income levels, you'd have to pay a little bit. But it's designed in such a way that you would be able to afford to pay that because you are making more money. So that's gotten better. The other thing is Wisconsin is one of the only states that has a statewide system of free benefits counseling. So if you noticed, you know, uh, over by Northport, there's the new Aging and Disability Resource Center, the ADRC. Well, in that building, they actually have trained, certified benefits counselors who provide free benefits counseling to any person with disability in Dane County. So if people are worried, gee, I better not get a job or I better not get by too many hours or I'll lose my benefits, rather than guess about that or just avoid getting a job because you're fearful about it, people can go in there and get an expert benefits assessment and, and get professional advice so that they could earn more money, not lose their Medicaid card, and not lose their, their public benefits. So, we're, we're in better shape than some states are because we have that expert help, but we still do need Congress to do some reforms because like that asset limit, I mean, that hasn't been adjusted in 15, 20 years. It's way out of date. Yeah, I have a son-in-law who was, has been blind since birth. He's now 65, and he just religiously hit the DV. He lives in Green Bay. He went... All, he was at DVR all the time. When the jobs that he was offered, or that they, he has two degrees, I should say. Yeah. He has two degrees from UW-Milwaukee, uh, the same ones his wife, my daughter, has. And, but they would, you know, the jobs that, that they sent him out to, um, he would not make enough money. He wouldn't make as much money as he made on uh, benefits. Well, now, what kind of sense is that? Yeah. Uh, and I don't know how it works anymore. He's 65 now, and he's not looking at all. <laughs> if, you, if you talk to a lot of people with disabilities in Wisconsin about DVR, you, you get mixed reviews. And it's a big agency. They have a lot of local offices. Some people have had a really positive experience with DVR, and some have not. So, you know, all I can say is we're hoping we'll get more consistent quality from DVR across the state, but we're not there yet. What actually happens is once you hit a certain income level, when you go beyond that, your disability check will go down. It'll go down one, $1 for every $2 you earn. So you'll actually come out ahead, but you, you will see your check reduced. But you can sort of understand that. You know, as somebody's starting to make more money, you know, society's thinking, well, you don't need the helping hand as much as you would if you were if you were unemployed. So there's a certain logic to it. But a lot of people think you just totally lose your check, and that's not true. It, your check will be gradually diminished. But that's why people need benefits counseling to get a really get a good, accurate answer to that. I want to thank our speakers, and I'd like you to thank them as well.
You've been listening to an Issues Forum titled Expanding Rights and Equality for All, sponsored by the League of Women Voters of Dane County and held on February 4, 2015 in Madison. To find out more about the League of Women Voters of Dane County, go to lwvdanecounty.org. This event was recorded and produced by Mind's Eye Audio in Madison, Wisconsin.